0: This morning we are stepping away from our series through the book of Acts. If you're new here, we've been taking some time, section by section, working our way through the gospel of Luke. We're going to step away from that for the next several weeks to think about the birth of Jesus, which should not be all that surprising given that we are three weeks away from Christmas. Isn't that crazy? Three weeks from today, we'll be meeting right in here at 10:30, to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. So there are lots of ways at Christmas time that we can think about the birth of Jesus. We can, for example, think about the birth of Jesus through the eyes of those who saw Him, through Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. Or we could look at the birth of Jesus through the perspective of the prophecies. There were hundreds of prophecies made about Jesus. Jesus and his life and his birth and all of them came true. That'd be another great way of looking at Jesus. But what I want to do for the next five weeks is I want us to look specifically at Jesus's birth from the perspective of kingship. Kingship. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was born a king. We don't really have many kings today, and the closest thing we have is is Charles now, right? He had to wait, what, like 67 years to become king? Jesus was born king, and not just any king, as we will see this morning, he was born the king of all kings. So if you're taking notes this morning, the title of this series for the next five weeks will be called Born is the King, Born is the King. But before we jump in this morning, let me just kind of give a short infomercial about uh, some resources that might be helpful. We won't do this every week. We'll just do this one time. Some resources that you may find helpful this time of year. So first is on the left, a Advent devotional called Come Let Us Adore Him by Paul David Tripp. It's fantastic. It just walks through beginning December 1st all the way up through Christmas And just provides a short reading, scripture reading, and a short uh, reading each day to kind of coincide with the scripture reading, preparing your heart for the birth of Jesus. Excellent. If you're an adult, this would be a fantastic resource. Or maybe if you're married or dating, this would be a fantastic resource to go through together, kind of read over together. Uh, The resource on the far right is specifically geared towards families with young children. So if you have Little ones in the house, elementary school age and younger, it does a fantastic job kind of filling in the gap that we as parents sometimes miss, which is, yes, Jesus was born as a baby, but why was Jesus born? Like, Jesus wasn't born just to stay a baby. Jesus was born to become a human and to live and to grow up and then to die and to rise from the dead. And so uh, Marty Machowski does a fantastic job in Prepare Him Room and just kind of tying all of that together, we have that in the bookstall as well. Then the resource in the middle, we do not have in the bookstore, so you're going to have to just order that. They don't sell on an Amazon. You have to go to the website. But uh, it's called The King is Coming, and Tara and I and our kids have done this for the last number of years. They are Advent blocks. Now, I don't want to spoil too much for you, but there's a unique way that they use 25 blocks and uh, symbols on the blocks and numbers on the blocks to kind of tell the story. And so in our home, it becomes really fun for the kids to not only hear the devotional and to read the scripture passage each day as we prepare for Christmas, but to get to kind of be the one to turn the block and see what the symbol is. And then the symbol means something and ties together with the the whole. So again, I don't want to spoil too much for you. They're kind of pricey, it's the only downside. We're not giving those away to everyone who comes in today like, You know Oprah style like everybody gets a block set you know but I would encourage you especially if you have kids at home fantastic resource but you have to get that online all right infomercial's over you can tune back in all right we are still in the book of Luke however we're backing up as you can see to Luke chapter one and so where we find ourselves this morning Jesus has not yet been born In fact, earlier in Luke chapter 1, near the beginning of chapter 1, an angel of the Lord named Gabriel visits a priest named Zechariah with the news that he and his wife are going to have a son. And this son will play a special role. He will be the forerunner. He will be the one who prepares the way for the rescuer that God had promised for hundreds of years to send. So, Zechariah's son, who would be named John, would get the people ready for the arrival of the Messiah. He'd be like the warm up band preparing people for the arrival of the main event, who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then, in our text this morning, Gabriel, the very same angel, is sent by God on another mission, this time to a city in Nazareth to a virgin named Mary. And he comes to her which, with what must have been an incredibly shocking message. Just listen to the interaction. Verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. <clears throat> and she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. Mary. will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, there is so much that we could say about this text. There's so much that we could say here about Mary, about how she is blessed and favored by the Lord, about her submissive response to this life-changing message, and and all of that would be good, could be fitting. But this morning, I want us to focus in and and zoom in on what we learn about the identity of this king who would be born. So that's going to be the lens through which we view the text this morning. What, What do we learn in this text about the identity of this king who would be born? And when I say would be born, And I'm going to probably say that from time to time throughout this series, refer to something that will happen. We also know as we sit here in 2022, this is something that has happened. Jesus has already been born, lived, died, resurrected from the dead, and will be coming back. And so there's kind of a looking ahead for those who are in the text, and there's also a looking back for us. So I'm going to use some of those words interchangeably. And rather than walking line by line as we normally do on Sunday mornings, I want to point out kind of three big ideas or three points of identity about this king who was and is born. So to do so, I want to give you just kind of one word for each of these three. And the first word is divine. <clears throat> it's actually divine. It's not like the first word's divine. Let me tell you what that word is, right? It is divine. So this baby... To be born would in so many ways be like every other baby. He would cry. He would need food. He would mess his diaper. He would want to be held just like every other baby because he would be fully human. Like he would think and he would feel. And yet this baby would be incredibly different from you and me because he would be divine. He would be God. In fact, Gabriel tells Mary in verse 32 that this baby to be born will be great, the son of the Most High. And when we read the word great there, we probably think, well, <laughs> that's great, right? That's a nice, nice word, great, because we use great a lot. think like It was a great movie or a great cup of coffee or a great book or a great game. But this great here means something more. There's something significant about greatness, and we know that because of what follows great in verse 32. Again, look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Jesus' greatness, and this is important, Jesus' greatness would not just come from what he would do later in life. And Jesus' greatness would not just come from what and how he would teach. And Jesus' greatness would not just come from the miracles that he would perform or even the way he would die and come back to life. Jesus' greatness begins with his identity. He is the Son of the Most High God, which is another way of saying he is the Son of God. Jesus was born divine. He is God in a human body. And if you've spent much time around the church at all or around Christianity at all, around the Bible at all, you're probably quite familiar with that terminology, that Jesus is God in the flesh. But if maybe you're newer to Christianity or newer to the church or newer to the Bible, you're thinking, okay, wait a minute, like hold the phone. That is a significant Message. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. You're saying that this person who was born, a, a full human being, was also fully God? Yes, that's what we're saying. In fact, that's what Orthodox Christianity for over 2,000 years has said. So maybe this morning you're a bit skeptical of that, and that's okay. You're, you're in the right place to be if you're a bit skeptical about that. We should ask the question then, well, how was Jesus divine? How is Jesus divine? And part of the answer to that question of how Jesus is divine is connected to what Gabriel says here, communicates to us here, that God would send his son to be born into the world as a human. Part of the way that Jesus was divine is because he came from the Father. In fact, Paul would write to the church in the city of Philippi and he would say this Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, okay, church at Philippi, believers, I want you to think in the same way that Jesus thought, like this. Who, verse 6, Talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says, Christian, your life is to be marked by the same humility that marked Jesus' life. And we see Jesus' humility on full display in the reality that Jesus did not count the privileges of his divinity as something he just wanted to hold on to for his own sake, but he emptied himself. Now Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity, but he emptied himself for a time of the privileges of his divinity so that he might for all time take on flesh. So that he might be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that he might be our savior. And therefore, Paul says in verse nine, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name we're going to talk in just a few minutes about what that name is so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father in fact paul makes this very same point about jesus preexistence and how he was born as a human into our world god sending his son he makes the same point in a more condensed way Which you might be thinking well why didn't you just lead with a condensed way When he writes to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, when the time was just right, in the master plan of God, God sent forth his son. He didn't create his son out of nothing. He didn't make his son, but he sent forth his son. Born of a woman, which is what we're reading right now, born under the law, Meaning he came to live and walk on this earth and to be fully obedient to the law of God that we have not been obedient to, so that we who are under the law might receive adoption as sons through him. So how was Jesus both fully man and fully God? Well, it's because God sent his son, his son who eternally existed with the Father, in fact, some of you have probably memorized John chapter 1, verse 1, which talks about Jesus even before he was born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. It uses the code word for Jesus, logos, which means word, referring to what Jesus does. But it says, in the beginning was the word, or was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. So Jesus' life didn't begin in Mary's womb. Jesus has always existed with the Father as part of the eternally existing triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, this has been a part of historic Orthodox Christianity ever since the, the church was formed by the Lord Jesus Christ and ever since the Holy Spirit breathed life into the assembly we call the church. In fact, when that doctrine of Jesus eternally existing with the Father was questioned and debated and doubted by some, the church leadership gathered together in a city called Nicaea in the year 325 to, to put into written form so that everyone could see this is the standard, this is what we have always taught, this is what we have always believed. And part of that Nicene creed includes the words that Jesus was begotten, not made, It was not made. So we know that Jesus was divine because he was always divine, always existing with God as God. And we know that he was fully divine even when he came to earth because he was sent by God the Father to earth to be fully God and fully human. But there's something else as well in our text this morning that helps us to see how Jesus was born divine. Remember, Gabriel has been sent to a virgin in Nazareth. In fact, we saw that in verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And virgins don't have babies, which is exactly how Mary responds to the angel in verse 34. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Seems like a perfectly acceptable question to ask in her circumstances. And thankfully, the angel of the Lord gives her the answer. He answers her question. Verse 35 Answer, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So, this baby would not be born like all other babies through the union of a man and a woman, he would be born to a virgin. But notice the point of the virgin birth is not the virgin birth. The point of Jesus being born through the Holy Spirit is not just so that Jesus would be born through the Holy Spirit. There's a therefore in verse 35 that's really significant. In fact, if you're someone who writes in your Bible, I would just encourage you to circle the word therefore because it's really important. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Gabriel says, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Mary. Therefore, or the reason for the Holy Spirit coming upon you and the power of the Most High overshadowing you, the reason for that is so that the child that will be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The reason, Mary, that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and the power of the Most High will come upon you is so that this child who will be born will not be like every other human being but rather will be fully God even as he's fully man. Because the Holy Spirit of God will make her conceive supernaturally. Which may cause you to think well how in the world can that happen? I can't even wrap my mind around that. But that's just it, isn't it? I mean, we can't wrap our mind around that because it's not natural. It's supernatural. Like no other human being has ever been conceived like this. No other human being will ever be conceived like this. And so for us, trying to wrap our minds around this, all of this just seems like an impossibility. But aren't miracles just that? Things that are logically or physically or humanly impossible, and yet they happen through some sort of divine intervention. They happen because the natural laws of nature or the natural laws of logic or the natural laws of science are suspended by the Almighty to accomplish His purposes in ways that aren't natural. I mean, that's what a miracle really is. We use miracle in lots of different ways. Right? Like we had the miracle on ice back in what, 1980. Maybe you are a golfer and you get like a hole in one, and you're like, it's a miracle. Like technically, it's not a miracle because given enough time, enough practice, enough swings, enough hitting the ball, there, there is some sort of numerical probability that if you hit the ball, it is logically possible to hit it in such a way with the right conditions and the right weather for the ball to go into the hole on its own without a divine work of God in one shot. <laughs> Some of you are like, you, you haven't seen my golf game. It is a miracle, right? <laughs> Maybe that's true. But like, for a miracle to technically be a miracle requires a suspension of the laws of nature, a suspension of the things that normally, logically, scientifically, reasonably happen. So I don't, I don't want to be, I'm not the miracle police, like here comes Eric. We can't use the word miracle because it's yeah, technically a miracle. There are different kinds of miracles, right? There are grade A miracles, which are those things I just described. There's grade B miracles, right? Like the birth of a child. Right? We, we know scientifically, medically how it happens, but it's still a part of the sovereign work of God because God's sovereignty covers all things. So that's a miracle as well. So there's lots of different kinds of miracles. But we should be reminded of that when we wonder, okay, well, how in the world can this happen? Because the Bible is filled with lots of different kinds of miracles, things that would be impossible to happen without divine intervention. And we all believe in miracles of some sort. Because logic can't answer the most fundamental questions that we have in the universe. Physical science, biological science, evolutionary science cannot answer the most fundamental questions we have about the universe. And so even those who want to extract God or the divine from the equation can go back to a point in time when something happened in space and time to matter but they can't explain how we got the matter or how we we got the space or how we got the time. Like Sooner or later, if we ask enough questions and go back far enough, we get to the place where science, logic, reason on our own, outside of the divine, can't answer our questions. We either have to say, well, I just don't know, or we can say, actually, God has told us. And if we believe the Bible, and the Bible is clear that in the beginning God existed and God created all things out of nothing, then nothing is impossible for God. Even conceiving a baby boy in the virgin womb of a Jewish girl. Like, I'm just guessing, not knowing the mind of God, but I'm just guessing that because God created Everything that exists, like in all of its infinitesimal complexity and in all of its majestic grandeur, God created all of it by speaking it into existence. I'm guessing that because God does that and can do that, that conceiving His Son through a virgin is like a small thing. Is not hard. And because Jesus was born of the decisive work of the Holy Spirit of God, the child conceived in Mary's womb was and is God himself. Which is exactly what we read in verse 35. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And there are so many reasons why it is important that the baby born in Bethlehem was no ordinary baby. In fact most importantly of all the important reasons why it's necessary that he was not an ordinary baby is because if Jesus had not been divine he could not have saved us from our sin if he were fully man without being fully God he would be a sinner like us And his death, even had he chosen to die, would be for his own sin. Because the wages of sin is death. His death would not have been in our place. It would have been in his own place. And we would then be without hope and without salvation. But because Jesus was and is divine, the holy son of God, it means everything for us. Which leads us to our second word this morning, which is salvation, salvation because Jesus is divine he can be God's salvation for those who believe we get that primarily from verse 31 look at verse 31 and behold you will conceive in your womb Gabriel tells Mary and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus that name is really important in fact, Paul, in the section that we just read, the church at Philippi, says, the father has given his son the name that is above every name. Now, in our culture today, we put a lot of thought, we put a lot of time into naming our children. Like we create lists, don't we? we? There are whole apps that you can use to help you find the kind of name you're looking for. Like, answer these 20 questions, it helps to guide you to the right kinds of questions, and then you kind of, you know, trying to compare your list with your spouse's list and you find out that maybe you don't like any name on either one of your lists. And then you're trying to like balance that with name association, like I knew so-and-so and he pulled my hair on the playground as a kid so we're definitely not naming our kid that. You're trying to fit that with your last name so that it doesn't sound silly. And then you're thinking about family names and not wanting to offend someone else in the family. And You're trying to do all of those things because we put a lot of weight on names. But one of the areas where we don't often put a lot of weight, at least in our culture, is on what a name means. We know that because maybe if you're a little more savvy on what names mean and you meet someone and they're like, this is little so-and-so, and you're like, oh, that, that name you know, means bitter or <laughs> that name means destroyer. And you're like, oh, that's creative, right? You just keep your mouth shut, as you should. But we don't often think about that. In fact, I've known folks who, you know, wait years, like their kid is an adult, and then they find their, what their name means in a baby book, and they go back to mom and dad, like, how dare you name me this? Like, you were fine before you knew, just continue in ignorance, right? It's better that way. But in the world of the Bible, names had meaning, and the meanings were important. In fact, even today, if we do name someone based on a meaning, it's aspirational, isn't it? It's like, I'm going to name my son this because it means mighty warrior, and I hope that they'll be a mighty warrior for the Lord. It's aspirational. We're aspiring to something, but not so for God. When God names someone something in the Bible, it's not aspirational, it's revelatory. He's revealing something about them that is true, not something that he hopes might become a reality. And that's the case here. When God's messenger says to Mary, you're going to conceive a baby in your womb and you are to give him the name Jesus, it's important. like God is naming this baby. And Jesus literally means Yahweh is salvation. Or Yahweh saves, or the Lord saves, depending on how you want to translate it. Think about that. God's message to Mary is you are going to name this baby the Lord saves. Do you think just maybe he's trying to send a message? The salvation that had been promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world, God was now shifting that salvation plan into a whole new gear with the birth of this child, this child child will be God's salvation of his people. And God is taking the initiative. And just like he did when Adam and Eve sinned and God sacrificed an animal and covered their shame, God took the initiative. Just like God took the initiative and provided a boat for a man named Adam to rescue him from the wages of sin. And just like God took the initiative and provided Moses as the rescuer of his people in Egypt, God is again taking the initiative, providing the very apex of his salvation in the life of this baby boy who would be born, this boy who would be named the Lord saves. To which we should ask, how does the Lord save through Jesus? Like, how will Jesus, just by being born? If we we listen to some in our world, even some religious people, it, it seems as though just the fact that Jesus is born, and now everybody's saved who celebrates Christmas or has a nativity in front of their house. But if you remember back to the beginning, after God created all things, the first two humans, Adam and Eve, chose to not honor him as God. They chose to rebel against him. Chose to sin. And as a result, all of humanity faces the reality of sin. We are born in sin because we are children of Adam. Like, we don't have to teach babies to be selfish, they just naturally sin. They do that automatically because it's their nature. And in addition to our internal sin nature, we all also experience life in a world that is warped, bent out of shape by sin. We see natural disasters, we see wars, even gray hair and crow's feet, right, are a sign of a fallen body broken world. It's the consequences, like aches and pains, of living in a world that just isn't right. A world that the Bible says is groaning for liberation from the curse of sin. Like all of that is the result of sin. But friends, the worst effect of our sin is that it separates us from the God who made us. God's disposition towards us in our sin is not neutrality. Rather, he is rightly and justly angry because of sin. And he is fair and right and just to punish our sin. He must hold us and all humanity accountable for our rebellion against him to be God, to be fair and right and just. But this is where, even in the Garden of Eden, even when Adam and Eve first sinned, this is where God promised to send an offspring of the woman who would crush the enemy and rescue his people forever, Genesis 3.15. And throughout the Old Testament, as the Old Testament unfolded, which is the first two-thirds of our Bible, God provided clues and hints and prophecies about this coming offspring of the woman, this coming Messiah, this coming Savior. And then when the time was just right, God provided in this remote part of the Roman Empire his son. And God prepares the way by sending this messenger to a girl named Mary that she was about to give birth to the very one who was promised. And that the way he would rescue his people is by living without sin by willingly taking the punishment of our sin upon himself and by paying our punishment in our place on the cross. And so, eventually 33 or so years later, Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly died. He willingly rose from the dead so that everyone whose eyes have been opened to see and believe that we are a sinner And everyone whose heart has been turned to believe that Jesus is rightly and truly the son of God who died in our place for my sin as my only hope of rescue, we are saved. Are you trusting in Jesus like that this morning? We have the saving effects of Jesus' death and resurrection applied to the account of our life. We are forgiven and adopted and saved. This is how Jesus is the Lord's salvation for all who believe. But there's one more word that's important from these verses. And that's the word rain. And if you're thinking, okay... It's 11.59. We have one more word. Let not your heart be troubled. We're going to primarily be looking at this third word, rain, next week when we look at Jesus' lineage, at his family tree and why that's significant. If a family tree and, you know, like, uh, you know, genealogy stuff, like, completely bores you, it's okay. This won't bore you tomorrow, or next week it's amazing Jesus' genealogy and how it fits together to tell the story of who Jesus is and why he has come and what he has accomplished and what he will accomplish one day when he returns. So we're going to spend most of our time next week looking at this idea of Jesus reigning, but I just wanted to touch on it this week to kind of whet your appetite for what is to come. Look at verse 32. It says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Like Jesus was born to reign as king and his reign is unending. And this is not just some future reality. Like one day Jesus will reign. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now that right now there is a human man, fully God and fully man, but still very much in the flesh who is seated right now at the right hand of the Father, ruling, exercising authority over all things, big things, medium-sized things, and small things. And it's easy for us to look around in 2022 and to think, well, how in the world is Jesus reigning with all that's going on in our world? And if we really wanted to depress one another, we could just get together and create a gigantic list of all the ways that our world seems broken and wrong and falling apart. Things like cancer and broken homes and jealousy and unforgiveness and wars and political divide and abortion and child abuse, hunger and droughts and floods and evil leaders. And all of that could make us wonder, okay, like, so where is God if he is truly ruling and reigning right now? Because I certainly don't see him. This is where it is helpful to remember that Jesus is ruling and reigning by his spirit through his church, his people. The fact that as you look around to the right and left, there are people around you who have been saved through the same door of faith in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection as you. The same people who are seeking to be conformed into the image of God. The same people who are seeking to exercise dominion in our world in ways that are creative and helping our world to flourish through the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways that honor the Lord, that reflect his goodness and his love and his creativity and his grace and his hope. It's also helpful for us to remember that the final chapter has yet to come. Like God is not done in our world. He has already provided his son to save us from our sin and to unite us to him. And he has promised that those who trust in him have an inheritance, that the best is yet to come. Like we will suffer in this life we will still face the effects of a broken world and our own sin. But the Bible is clear that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And he is working all things according to his master plan. And his master plan is glorious. Even if we can't see it right now. And so we can, with wide open eyes, fully acknowledging the reality of our broken world, we can still have hope and joy this Christmas because Jesus has not abdicated his throne. He is still ruling and reigning. He is still working his master plan. If like we can't always see it, sometimes the road is hard, but he has promised to provide the Savior and he provided the Savior and he promised to redeem a people and he is redeeming a people. And just as Jesus was born divine and just as he accomplished his saving work for us, he, God, will see to it that we are brought safely home. He will see to it that our joy in him is not wasted. And He will do all of this through his son that we come and we adore, especially this time of year. His son, born to a virgin named Mary, given the name Jesus, fully divine, the one who came to save, the one who even now is reigning and will reign forever and ever and ever. Would you stand? Let's pray.